Hey, beloved, welcome to another chapter of the book of Sean. I'm excited to have you. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great show for you tonight. And you know, when I say that, I always mean it. But tonight's show is going to be absolutely amazing. We talk about racism in the abstract. We talk about the abstractions of racism at the systemic level. But tonight, we're going to have a conversation about what that means for the soul. What does it mean for the spirit of the man, the humanity of the person, to live through the indignities of someone disrespecting you for no other reason but simply because you're black or brown or woman or gay or trans or whatever it is. Tonight, we're not going to talk in abstractions. We're not going to talk in theoretical concepts of ontological significance. We're going to talk at the level of the human being. My guest tonight knows what it is to have to deal with the vicissitudes of race and bigotry in this country, as all black men do. But he is going to give voice to the emotional life, the inner world, which is the result of when the country you were born in treats you like you belong somewhere else. Welcome to the show tonight, my guest, Maxwell Pierce. (laughs) <laughs> hey, Maxwell. How you doing, man? Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And just for full disclosure, I know Maxwell's family. <laughs> this is the first time Maxwell and I have met. We've never met before, but I do know his family. And so, you know, I love him already. <laughs> <laughs> right back at you, bro. <laughs> so, Maxwell, let's get into it, okay? Um, And I'm going to ask you a question that might seem pedantic, maybe a little trite, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, You are a black man in America. You've had to deal with racism, obviously. But tell me how the experience of that has been different for you. Um, So for me, you know, I've a lot of my experience has come after the fact of people confirming that I'm black. I certainly can recognize that there is colorism, especially within our race. So while I still have to deal with the multitude of uh, mistreatments and and all these other things, I am racially ambiguous at first sight. So people might think that I might be mixed or some other race um, outside of being black. Hmm. So I, I definitely can recognize that privilege and the difference in the experiences of my friends or even with some of my family members who are much darker than I am. Mm. Mm. And now, that's interesting. So let's take all of your experiences as an aggregate. Let's put them all together. Okay. And tell me at the emotional level, at the psychological and spiritual level, what have all those experiences done to you? What have they created in your inner life? My experiences have always brought me to a place of of rage and and anger and Mm. uh, frustration that I I really wasn't able to get a a mental grasp on or a clear concept of what I was feeling and, and how to handle those feelings for such a long time. Like I remember one time when I was in high school and I was at a, a friend's house and we were playing basketball and he was frustrated because I was beating them. And so he just threw out, he just called me the N-word, like just threw it out there out of his frustration. And um, in the moment, I wanted to beat him up in his backyard. <laughs> and 
then I thought about it and I was like, you're 40 minutes away from home. Are you going to let somebody's words bring you to, to physical action? Um, so ultimately, I didn't physically react. Mm. Uh, but that was the demise of the friendship for sure. Mm. And tell me what else it killed in you. Because whenever rage and frustration run amok, they are also assassins. They kill other virtuous parts of who we are. So in that day, in that moment, although you didn't kill him, what died in you? I would say a good chunk of the grace that I normally operated with. Mm. I've, I've naturally always been a person who gives a lot of grace and I give a lot of second chances. A lot of my friends tell me that I'm too nice. Um, and, and sometimes people have taken advantage of that, especially when I was younger. So um, I think a lot of my patience and my grace has definitely mm. uh, gone away with, with that experience. Which is tragic because we need more black men who operate with grace. We need more black men who operate with a sense of mercy, not just for white folks in the rest of the world, but for themselves and for their own families and for, and for the right. rest of us, right? So it's, it's, it's a great tragedy that you had to give up some of that, or the, let me say it better, that some of that was taken from you um, when you should and you will need it going forward. Let me, so, so this is interesting. Was there a moment where, where the loss of grace crystallized itself? What I'm asking is, was there a moment when you realized, wow, I have really lost my capacity to see people with charity? Oh, wow, that's a loaded question. I think, um, I don't think it's crystallized, fortunately. Mm -hmm. I've had some other experiences. I mean, I mean also, kind of becoming more knowledgeable about this dynamic, um, especially through my, my firsthand experience and through the experience of some of my peers, I understand that I need to have a certain level of grace um, if we're going to make any kind of progress. And then I also need a certain level of patience uh, for just my own sake, regardless of whether it's um, racial experiences or things that aren't even related to that. Okay, but let, let, let me push a little bit, because here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, what's the story behind the moment when you realize, wow, I'm different? Wow, something's changed. Okay. Um, I would probably say that the next four or five interactions with people who were in the same circle of that friend uh, in that particular story, my, my guard was up immediately. Mm. I was already expecting some kind of uh, bias or treatment um, or even language. Um, I, I was on guard for a bunch of microaggressions to happen um, if they were going to be indirect. Mm. But, um, I was I was much more on guard. I, I definitely remember feeling like, all right, what is this kid about to say? What is this kid about to say? I already know what he's feeling. Mm. You mentioned that you were anger and you angry rather, and you also mentioned that this was a friend of yours. Um, so my question is, were you hurt? Because you didn't mention pain. You didn't mention disappointment. Um, you know, I I don't think there was as much disappointment as I thought there would be. And maybe that's because from the little knowledge of 
the the racial dynamics or the little knowledge that I had about the racial dynamics that would be at play once I stepped out into the world um, kind of took whatever percentage of disappointment away. Uh, when that happened, I think it was more so a wake up call that I was not exempt from that, regardless of of how much lighter I am than um, some of my my friends and family members. Okay, but but that, that's perfect because because I'm, but I'm gonna push, and that okay. didn't disappoint you. It didn't it didn't hurt you to know that you're not exempt, that you are as much an N word to some people as the rest of us. You gonna tell me there was no disappointment? No, no pain. No, I, I think there was disappointment. I just, <laughs> I'm like, come I just, on, Maxwell. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I think I was disappointed that it was somebody that I used to call a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, for the, the reasons that you just mentioned, I also felt some kind of disappointment. But a, a significant part of me was like, you should have known. Mm. And so that's kind of the, the balance that creates the disposition that I had towards that particular experience. Mm. Which, which, and that's, I'm glad you said that because this is a teaching moment. Because whenever you do the, you should have known, or <clears throat> man, this is on me, what you're yeah. doing is the work that somebody else should be doing. Should be doing, exactly. Yes, yeah. You are taking yeah. on to yourself responsibility for something that you're not responsible for, which is how we deal, wait for it, with the pain. <laughs> <laughs> are you with me? Uh, that, that makes 100% sense. Talk about that. Talk, talk about how that makes sense for you right now. So I, I think... Like, and it's, it's so funny because as the receivers of racism, of disrespect, of all sorts of mistreatment, we do most of the heavy lifting mm -hmm. in terms of how we are um, finding the, the quote-unquote solution. It's really not a solution, to be honest. It's just like a, a Band-Aid fix to us to, for us to move past those things. Um, we're the ones that are running back the experience dozens of times in our minds. Like, well, mm -hmm. I could have acted this way, or maybe if I, if I acted differently and limited the, the kind of person that I am, or um, didn't show these certain parts of me that I wouldn't have had this experience. Um, but in fact, that's not how it's supposed to go. We're not, we shouldn't be limiting or, um, giving a, a different version of who we are for the sake of um, dodging any sort of mistreatment from people. That, that's definitely not right. Yeah, no, it never is. And it certainly was not right in the instance that you're speaking about with me right now. But it is a common pattern of how we respond. It is a common survival strategy. That, right. that you take upon yourself sort of the responsibility to know better when the truth of the matter is knowing how to respond to someone calling you something that degradates and, and, and humiliates who you are is something you should never have to know better about. <laughs> we, right. should, we should live in a world where you have to know better in, in that instance. But the reality is we do. Let me ask you this. What fear, what, what role rather does fear play in any of this? Fear is such a significant piece of this whole landscape because fear is what, for me personally, has driven my decision to address it 
or not address it. Mm. Fear has gotten in the way of me addressing things in the professional space, in a friend's space for the following reasons. Mm. In a professional space, if I address this, I run the risk of losing my job. I run the risk of uh, being demoted, Mm. um, which in turn jeopardizes my livelihood. In a friendship circle kind of space, it runs the risk of me becoming even more embarrassed of, um, you know, me being misunderstood and losing friends. Mm. And so for, for a while, a lot of these experiences produce so much fear of those consequences that I just decided I'm just not going to address it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm at a much better point now. Yeah. <clears throat> that is a very significant point that you just made, the, the whole relationship with fear. We're going to come back to that. Um, before we take this break, you had an incident happen with you in your professional life um, that was extremely rooted in racism. Talk about that for a little while. So I am a player for the Harlem Globetrotters. This is my fifth year. Two years ago, I was on live television doing an interview. And essentially, I was showing some basketball tricks and pieces of fruit were thrown at me, one of which was a banana. So for anyone who doesn't know, there is a long deep history of throwing bananas at black athletes. It's happened in soccer and hockey. And to give a little bit more background about just this um, racist trope in general, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up going to the Bronx Zoo. In the early 1900s, the Bronx Zoo had an exhibit where a man by the name of Oda Benga was captured from Africa and brought there to be put on display with literal monkeys in this cage. People from all across the world traveled to see Otabenga in this cage and would literally toss him monkeys, give him, I mean, sorry, toss him um, like he was a monkey. And so this is like a a direct example of the comparison or the implication of black people. So Maxwell, slow slow down for a second. Maxwell, hold on. Because I want, I want to just put the connections in, in their proper place. So when this happened, you immediately yeah. emotionally associated this whole moment with you, with the history of the trope of bananas and monkeys and athletes and, 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 and the gentleman that you mentioned. So for you, you were triggered by this. Is that, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. When, when it happened, because um, we have the video, but when it happened... I caught the banana and I smirked it off because I was in such disbelief that this was actually happening that I didn't even know how to react. It was, it was the most okay, stop, stop, stop right there. Stop right there. Cause this is beautiful. What we're going to do when we come back, we're going to talk through that response. Okay. We're going to work through what you did and what I'm going to advocate you do going forward. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Told you, told you it was going to be good. How do you not like Maxwell? He's a great guy. Um, This is real, and it's painful. But the good news is some of us do have strategies for how to live in the world that doesn't necessarily like you as long as you love yourself. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm talking to my main man, Maxwell Pierce. <laughs> we have a history. I mean, I know his family. I know his cousins. They're all friends of mine. So, and, and because, because I do know your family, um, I'm doubly disappointed with the world for how it has treated someone whose family I happen to know. Before we took our break, you were mentioning an incident that happened. Um, Talk through the incident again. So you were somewhere and someone did what? So I was doing a live interview about an upcoming Globe Charter game. And a banana was thrown at me, unannounced, unplanned. And I was already aware of the racial implications along with the history of throwing banana at black athletes. So when it happened, I caught the banana. Mm -hmm. I was, I just felt like I was in a dream. Like it, it didn't feel real. Uh, the, the first question in my head was like, am I like, am I actually here right now? Right, right, right. So, so let, let, let's, let's work through this. So the banana is thrown, you catch the banana. You can't believe that it's happening. What does the interviewer do? So at that point, the, the segment, the camera was shut off. Um, I took my mic off, and I walked out of the, the news station. Okay, was... stop. Stop. Stop right there. Because that's what, that's what we're going to do our work, okay? That's what we're going to okay. do our work. Because I'm hoping after this conversation is over, and maybe many conversations after this one, between you and I, that you mm -hmm. have a very different response. A very yeah. different response. Now, because I, because I know that to some degree, you operate with a level of in, intrepidation. I won't call it fear, but intrepidation, because you're not quite sure. And this is another thing that happens to black folks. We're not quite sure how our response to hurtful behavior towards us will be perceived by the people who actually hurt us, right? But the problem with that is whenever you do what you did, I'm not impugning you because you did what you knew how to do at the time. But whenever you do what you, what you did in that moment, what happens is you lose a little self-respect. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that's like, I saw your face change. What, what, what's that? What are you thinking and feeling right now? Um, so my, my initial reaction after I left <clears throat> was, was two things. One, I wanted to get some space to think about how I wanted to address it. Mm. After I already left the station, in my head, I'm like, like, why didn't you do something as soon as that happened? What's the answer to that? I, it was a few things. I mean, one was I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to act in a way where I couldn't take my action back. So whenever I'm presented with a situation where I really need time to think about how I want to respond. I remove myself from that space. Right, right. That Now that, ooh, this is about to get real good, Maxwell. Okay, because <laughs> there, there are two tracks that we're on. The first track is understanding that how you react in the moment to racism isn't necessarily, the racism itself isn't necessarily an indictment of you but an opportunity for you, rather, to make some changes in the world. Mm -hmm. So that the next time you're in those kind of situations, 
not 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 to be you know not to be triggered by it and and to go through the history of what this means but to realize this is not an indictment of me but this right. is my opportunity to make change in the world to own right. the moment since since now you've thrown a banana at me i'm going to take your banana and make it my platform right don't Cut the cameras off. <laughs> the mic stays on because now we're about to have a discussion about the world that we live in. But right. we're, we're working on another track. And the other track is this. You just said it. Tell me your history, your personal history with feeling like an outsider or feeling like you didn't always belong. Do you have a personal history with that? Um, I, I definitely have a personal history of being non-confrontational. Mm. So I think that is probably like the, the biggest piece of the foundation for the reason of why I decided that I need to get myself out of this space because I need time to process and decide how I want to react. Mm. Now, um, you skillfully avoided my question, which is good. <laughs> but, but, but I'm not going to let you get away with it. And the answer okay. is not an indictment of anybody in your life. It's not an indictment no, no, of no. anybody. But, but I'm, I'm going to bet all the money in my pocket against all the money in your pocket that you have a history with feeling different, not always at the center of the thing, because that's where, that's where being non-confrontational often comes from. Am I right? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. Now, you don't have to give me the details. You don't want me to have them. Okay? And that's fine. Um, but let me ask you a question. Um, is that history formative? Is it important? Is it significant? Right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And it's something you remember, right? Yes. And it's something you maybe sometimes, you know, replay in your spirit, in your mind. Right? Yes. Right. And I'm suggesting that's exactly what happens to you in confrontation. The real trigger here has to do with your sense of value, because I experience you. You're a charming, good looking, um, articulate, smart black man. Right. Anybody would be lucky to be your friend, to be your significant other, to be your coworker, um, to work for you. So it's ironic that I'm going to talk to you now about value because you seem to have a great sense of it. But on the lower frequency, at the level of where your story lives, there's a question right. of value. Yes? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, good, good, good. And what I'm saying is the way we go forward is to understand that your value is not diminished by confrontation and that your value is not defined by people's responses to how you respond to what they've done to you. So let's change gears. I'm working now. I'm working now, people. <laughs> let's change gears. You ready, Maxwell? Let's go. So tell me this. Tell me this. Tell me this. Um, um, what's your vision for your life? What's your vision? I want to leave a legacy that influences people to respond rather than react. I think that's this conversation, the topic of this conversation is symbolic of the, the themes that I'd like to leave in my legacy. 
I've I've been raised to react impactfully rather than impulsively, mm-hmm. even if that means taking a beat to address the situation. Mm-hmm. But I think I've in my childhood I've taken that to the extreme uh, by being non-confrontational. Yeah, I, I, I was just I, I was gonna let you finish, and I was gonna say, but now you're not reacting at all. So we got we got we got to right, work on that. Right, right. So 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 let let's let's come come out of the legacy history thing. I want you to be totally personal, totally Maxwell, totally you. What do you desire most for yourself? Just for you. Probably to see what my desire for myself <laughs> is, is directly connected to other people. Like, like my, my main goal for myself is to be an influential person in the right way. Like I, I genuinely want to pay it forward to to people who come after me or or who are right beside me. Mm-hmm. And normally that's a good thing. In this case, I'm a little worried. I'll tell you why. Because okay. if at the core of the issue is your sense of the of the extent, the depth, the perpetuity of your value, then you constantly deferring to the other is a way to reinforce the diminishment of your value. See, I think you need to be a little more selfish. You need to be a little more substantial in, in, your, in your sneakers when you stand so that when you walk across a room, you have a sense of the man who is walking and you have a sense that no one else could occupy this occupy rather that space the way that you do. I love the fact that you're altruistic. I love the fact that you're giving. I love the fact that you're empathetic. Those are all great qualities. Don't lose them. They're indicative (laughs) of the pierces. That's what y'all do. I get it. But I want you, I want you to own your sense of value and to own the fact that to be disrespected or to be loved is indicative and is a result of the fact that your being here is significant. You see, I'll put it this way. Tell me, tell me if you get it. Um, nobody fights a defeated foe. Nobody would attack you if you didn't have anything of substance or value to be taken. So the people who Correct. come against you see your value. And the people who love you see your value. The goal is for you to see it so that in either case, you understand that whether you hate me or you love me, I am what I am. <laughs> wow, that was a word. <laughs> I'm about that to throw word, my though. shoe, Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, and I'm not done because, because this, is, this is how we respond to race. Racism is a distraction. It's intent mm-hmm is to compel you to go through all of these rigmarole and changes in emotion so that you don't focus on the thing you really want to do. You never become who you really are. And I'm saying the only way you avoid racism being a distraction while at the same time making the world a better place is you see every opportunity of slight, every opportunity of hatred as an opportunity for you to show the world that you are better than how anybody treats you, that you are better than the condition in the country you were born in. You follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. So when I say that, before I take this break, what comes to your spirit when I say that? Um, a new sense of how to further communicate 
these messages to myself mm. and to my friends who constantly ask me questions about how to deal with this stuff. What I've found in, in my experience in the last two years is um, a lot of my close friends ask me, like, how have I been dealing with this? Um, what steps have I taken to kind of process um, and, and what is really produced from that experience? And sometimes I have a decent answer. Sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a struggle, but, you know, now it, it's a little bit clearer as to, um, you know, like the direction that I need to go in. Okay, do, do me a favor. Before we, before we take this break, matter of fact, let's do this. We're going to take a break. I'm going to keep you, okay? So I want to role play with you. And then okay. after the break is over, I'll let you go, okay? Okay. Okay, we'll be right back. I'm going to role play with him because I, wa I, want, I want to walk through what the response should be, at least in my opinion, when someone begins to ask some of the questions that people ask him. I'm going to ha have him ask me the question Wait till you hear the answer. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm talking to Maxwell Pierce about his journey uh, with race and bigotry and all the things that it stirs up. So, Maxwell, um, let me say this to you, because I want to I want to just before we do this role play, I, wanna, I, I think I feel obligated to say something to you about the time in your life when you did feel excluded or whatever the word might be. And, and, and just to be clear, everybody watching has been there. I've been there, you've been there, Juan over there has been there, everybody's been there. Here's the thing people need to learn about rejection or exclusion, is that most of the time at the moment when we were rejected or excluded, we were rejected and excluded by people who had no power to accept us in the first place. Mm. That we wanted to be accepted by people or to be seen by people who had no vision. Right. who had no authority. And so the hard work, you ready for me? The hard work is to forgive yourself for wanting to be included. Mm. Your face changed. What was that? that? That makes sense. I mean, like, when I think about all of the, most of the friends that I had in middle school, mm. more so elementary school, but most of those friends who I wanted to be in the space of, I haven't been friends with them since two years after knowing them. Mm. <laughs> um, we, we don't align in any way. I, I know of them still, but mm. we don't align in any way. Um, and I think my vision of what was attractive to me, what spaces were attractive to me at the time uh, was juvenile. And mm. so looking back now, it, it makes complete sense that like, why would I want to be around that kind of person in that kind of space? Um, yes, so but, I, but, I, but, I, but hold on, because you're using a little bit of condemnatory language towards yourself. See, at, at, at the age, it makes sense. You didn't know. Right. You're in right, sixth, right, seventh, right. eighth grade. What do you know? I mean, everybody yeah. wants to be a part of something. So, so, so it's, it's not to say, you know, boy, I was a meathead for wanting that. It's to say now I no longer need that. That's the difference. Correct. You follow me? Yes. Because when you can say, I no longer need that, then the next time rejection happens or somebody throws something, it doesn't trigger in you an internal narrative that says, oh, there it goes again. Or there it is again. The same thing that happened in the seventh grade here. No, no, no. You kill that narrative 
when you say, you know what, I forgive myself for even mm-hmm. wanting or needing that, and I decree and declare that that's not who I am anymore, and I don't need you to say yes to me because that's my job. Right. Right, right. So that's how we deal with exclusion. That's how we deal with it going forward. And that's going to allow you to respond not in fear and to say, I'm not necessarily worried about how you're going to respond to my response to what you did to me. My obligation to myself is to have a response. And so going forward, what I'm going to encourage you to do is to make sure that when you feel disrespected, I'm not saying you go crazy, you know, cuss people out, turn over the Gatorade, you know what I'm saying, kick people in the mouth. I'm saying, but in the moment, in order to honor yourself and to respect yourself, huh? You say, no, wait a minute now. We're going to deal with some of this right here. Now, some some, some other parts of it, we'll wait a couple hours, but this part we have to deal with now. Because the more you see yourself do that, the more you'll understand yourself to be greater than the infraction. And that's what I want you to get most. You are greater than the thing that's triggering you. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's do this before we take this break. Let's do some role plays. We'll do some role plays, Maxwell. So give me some of the questions your friends ask you that can be, you know, difficult questions and questions that are uncomfortable when you're an African-American in America and they may not be. Go ahead. So the most frequent question that I get is, how are you dealing with experiences with microaggressions that are constantly happening, whether they're in the workplace or, um, or outside of that? To which I respond, a better question is to ask yourself why microaggressions keep happening. It is not my responsibility to report back to you my responses to them so much as it is my responsibility to make you responsible for the fact that I have to deal with that. And you should not be comfortable that we live in a world where you get to ask the question and I'm responsible for answering the question. The truth of the matter is I only have to deal with microaggressions, not because black folks haven't tried to change the world, but because more white people haven't done it. Next question. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What else did they ask you, Maxwell, before I let you go? (laughs) uh, The the next most popular one is probably, how have you dealt with your experience on that interview when a banana was thrown? Um, Well, of course. This would require knowing some of the content of your life, yeah. but, 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 but yeah. I'll put it in my context as if I was answering the question. Okay. The way I've dealt with it is to put it in its proper place and to put it in its proper perspective. I am not defined by one anything that anybody does to me. I recognize that I'm bigger and better than all of that. But I do understand that I live in a country and in a world where my race is problematic for people. That who I am and where I come from, my history bothers people. My greatness is annoying to people who, are me- who happen to be mediocre. My sunshine is troublesome for the darkness. My anointing bothers people who don't know grace. The fact that I can sit in a room and change the whole atmosphere, I get it. It's problematic for people who can't change nothing. So I understand that more than a disrespect, it's actually a, a veiled compliment. Because when I come in, when I walk in, 
everybody knows I'm there. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's how I would answer them questions. See, you see, you know what I'm doing? I got to take this break and let you go. But you notice I never back up. I'm not on my back foot. I'm not right. backpedaling, explaining, shuffling, jiving, and making the historical argument. No, I lean forward. And I lean forward because I'm Annie Sue's son. Come on, Maxwell, yeah. don't get me started. I lean <laughs> forward because I know who my mama is. I know uh -huh. who my grandmama is. I know who, you know what I'm saying? That's why I lean yeah. forward. And I sit up in the chair. And if you want to engage me at the level of my pain and disrespect, be prepared to get mm -hmm. the best of me. And that's yeah. what I want you to do. That's powerful. Ooh. My man, Maxwell, we're going to stay in touch, all right? <laughs> Absolutely, man. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Listen, man, thank you for being on, and uh, we'll talk real soon. When we come back, everybody, I'm going to do an aha moment from this conversation. Maxwell gave me a few aha moments. I'm going to share them with you. Told you it was going to be good. Welcome back, everybody. Good conversation, right? Great conversation. Maxwell Pierce. Um, very interesting. I got some aha moments from it. Vicente, play the bumper. Hailey's not here. <laughs> so, listen. People love to do things, and they will continue to do them to, to you as long as they know that what they're doing has the power to affect you, has the power to unsettle you and make you back up. But the moment you learn how to absorb the infraction and transform that energy into the kind of energy that you want to lead with is the moment you teach people explicitly and implicitly how they should and should not treat you. You can't stop people from throwing things at you, but you can do something different with what they throw after you catch it. You see, the moment people realize that they don't have the power to break you down, and they don't have the power to knock you off your square, that you are so studied and centered and, and grounded and rooted that even in the, in the, in the flash of, 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 of light or the, or, the, or the blink of an eye, you can take what they meant for evil and work it for your good. And that's what I was trying to give Maxwell tonight. Learn how to take what they mean for evil and work it for your good so that you understand that people will never treat you the way you actually deserve to be treated. They only treat you the way you allow them to do. And I'm hoping that he goes forward and I go forward and you, all of us go, that we go forward clear that we're not who we used to be. We love who we are. And if you're going to come into our lives and be in our space, be prepared to wear sunglasses because we're prepared to shine. Let's do some Ask Dr. Sean. Vicente, play the bumper. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You guys always send me amazing videos. Take a look at this one. Hey, Dr. Sean. My name is Nate from San Francisco, California, and I need some advice. My teenage cousin just became pregnant, and her mother kicked her out of the house. She is asking to come live with me, and I'm unsure if I want to get involved. What do you think? If you don't want to get involved, then don't get involved. No, it's just that simple. If you don't want to be a part of this, then don't sign up for something you're not ready for. Because then you will resent her, you will resent yourself, and the situation. 
It's okay to tell people that you can't do something if you're not emotionally, psychologically prepared to do it. And this is the kind of situation where you got to be all in because you got a minor who wants to stay with you and will depend on you and who will need you for guidance and all of that. And if you're not ready for that, and you get to not be ready for that, by the way, because this is not your child, then the best thing to do is just be honest and be deliberate and clear. And to explain to, I think you said your cousin, that this is not the right season, not the right time, and I'm not the right person. But I'm willing to do everything that I can to help you find the right place, the right season, and the right person to help you with this. I'm willing to help and support, but I can't be what you're asking me to be right now. Honor yourself with the truth of your limits. There's some people who might say, well, you're supposed to jump in because it's your family. And that's how people end up falling out with their family. That's how people end up not liking being at home in their own house where they pay the bills. Because you allow people in, in rather, out of obligation and duty not out of a sense that this is what I want to do. Anything that you do because you feel you have to do that you don't really want to do won't flourish. Only the things that you plant with love and desire and commitment will bear fruit. If this isn't where you are, then be honest about it because your honesty will serve her more than you allowing her to stay in your house and you don't really want her there. All right, someone um, emailed me this question. Let's take a look at it. My boyfriend and I have been together for six months. When I asked him if I should, if I could rather spend Christmas with him and his family, he said no. Should I consider this a red flag or was it too soon for me to ask him? Okay, I don't consider this to be a red flag at all. And I do consider six months to be on some level a little too soon. I don't like the fact that you felt you needed to ask. I don't like the fact that you didn't wait to be invited. I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to either appear needy or to be needy because your relationship is not with his family, it's with him. And if the relationship is going along well, and it's only been six months. I know, I know that some, you know, his generation over here, young folks, millennials, generation, generation Z, six months is 20 years, but it's not. It's not even a year. Okay, and there's something commendable about a young man who says, no, we've only been together six months and I don't, I, it's too soon. I'm not comfortable. See, respect his honesty and don't punish him for telling you the truth. You follow what I'm saying? Because you will be teaching him to lie to you in the future. You asked, he answered, you didn't like the answer and you have a right not to like it. But put that answer in perspective and realize you're dealing with someone who's not necessarily hiding something. He's hiding his family. He just doesn't feel you're there yet. And he has a right to feel that way in as much as you have a right to want to be there. That's what a relationship is about. Two different people coming from two different perspectives, having two different sensibilities, trying to come to a common agreement. The fact that he said no is not a red flag for me. In fact, it shows a little integrity that he can be clear and honest and direct. He doesn't do things out of obligation. He's clear about the fact of what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. And he's man enough and loving enough to tell you. I want you to have, to no longer have rather the need to ask those kind of questions. All right?
Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're gonna do some Here's What Doesn't Make Sense. Welcome back, everybody. So we have a little segment around here that we call Here's What Doesn't Make Sense. Play the bumper. <laughs> a lot of foolishness and shenanigans going on in the world. <clears throat> Here's one about an Arizona polygamist. Not to be confused by a Utah polygamist or a Montana polygamist. Why is it that that part of the world has a lot of polygamists? But we won't discuss that. Check this out. Cult leader Samuel Bateman apparently has 24 wives, most of whom are under the age of 15, including his own daughter. Yes, you heard me. They're under the age of 15, and one of them apparently, allegedly, is his own daughter. According to the FBI, Samuel Bateman allegedly described himself as a prophet and that the impressions of the Heavenly Father's will were motivating him to coerce his followers, including young girls, into sexual relations. I don't understand. I don't understand, and this is the part that doesn't make sense. I don't understand why people let other people get up and convince them that they're talking for God, as if God can't speak for himself. You know what I'm saying? How do we uncritically allow someone to act like they're talking for God and we just uncritically accept it? God told me to sleep with you, so come on. I don't care how much anybody claims to be speaking for God or in the name of God. If it don't make sense, then it don't make sense. And if it ain't right, then it ain't right. I don't care who says that God said it. I'll go a step further. Y'all ready? I don't even care if God said it. If it don't make sense and it ain't right, I ain't doing it. Because I don't leave my mind at home when I go to church, and I invite you to bring your mind with you the next time you sit in a pew or a synagogue or a mosque or anywhere you claim to be around people who claim to be speaking for God. Brothers and sisters, hear me today, because here's a man who allegedly is having sex with a little girl as young as nine years old, and he's using religion to justify it. This is the problem with religion. I got to go, but this is the problem of religion because religion has been used to justify abuse, oppression, and everything, oppression rather, and everything else. God ain't told nobody to have sex with no child, okay? God has not told nobody to have sex with kids. And if by some chance God ever did, that's the kind of God I don't want nothing to do with. That's not what God does. God has no history of that. Religion is what this man is promoting. He's a prophet in religion. And religion always has an agenda. That is to say, there's always somebody at the center of religion trying to use the principles of the religion for the purposes of power and manipulation. Before white folks came down from Europe and Arabs came from the Middle East, Africans had something better than religion. We had spirituality. That is to say, we had the principles and the practices and the standards of our relationship with God. Maybe we need to get back to that. It's about a connection to the divine and not listening to some man or woman get up and tell us what thus saith the Lord. Anyway, let's move on. Before we go, I got one more for you. Let's talk a little bit about social media. So, check this out. A recent report has described social media as the latest and most popular way for people to secure legal drugs in America. 
In a recent report detailed by the Washington Post and the New York Times, it was reported that people are purchasing pills on platforms such as Facebook, Snapchat, and whatever else is out there. And in many cases, they are dying because of the content of the pills. Zach Didier, unfortunately, was one of those people who allegedly purchased pills on social media and ended up dying because of it. We talk a lot about addiction in America, and we should. But what do we do when we talk about addiction to drugs and its connection to our addiction to our phones? What do you do when two addictions come together? We're addicted to drugs and we're addicted to social media and our phones. And now one feeds the other and one informs the other and one allows the other to be even more deadly. I don't have a lot of good things to say about social media, okay? I'm, I'm open and clear about that. Social media is not my thing. And as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more than a more effective delivery system for pornography and gossip. And, of course, hate. And not that there's anything wrong with pornography, by the way. <laughs> or gossip. You know, a little gossip ain't going to kill nobody. But there is something wrong when you can't put your phone down long enough to realize that there is a greater and bigger problem living and lurking around your life. And that problem is the addiction that we have to whatever it is we happen to be addicted to. We don't just have a drug problem in America. We have an addiction problem. People right now watching, we're going to make confessions. Some of y'all are addicted to TikTok. You're addicted to sugar. You're addicted to carbohydrates, addicted to alcohol, addicted to sex, addicted to attention. We have an addiction problem in this country, and now social media allegedly is facilitating more deadly results because of it. Most of the people that you know don't have a sense of their own value. So we use food and other things to fill us with the things that food can never fill us with. We use drugs and barbiturates and alcohol and weed and everything else to take us somewhere that those things can never take us. We turn to sex and social media, and pettiness and anger and other things to fill us. When the truth of the matter is, you came here full. You're already full. If you know someone who's struggling, check on them. If you know someone who's exhibiting addictive behavior, be concerned about it because they might not just be on social media to see a video. They might be on social media to get something that might be deadly. Love each other enough to care. And by all means, be good to yourself. I want to thank Maxfield for being on tonight. He was an amazing guest. I had a great time talking to him and by extension, talking to you. Remember who you are. Don't let people back you up. When you sit, sit up straight and lift your head up. And anybody who comes for you better know they're coming for all the people, all the ancestors that were here and support you. Be good to each other. I love you. Yes, I do. See you next time. Bye-bye.